Let's stand together, and if you have your Bible, let's turn to Nehemiah 13. I'm going to begin in the middle of this section. Normally, you begin at the beginning, but stay with me. 13.4. Now, prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. But during all this time, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. So he goes back to meet with the king. We're not sure how long. Could be up to two years or so. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and I learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Now let's stop here for a minute. Go up to verse 1. We'll see why Nehemiah was upset. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. There was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Tobiah was an Ammonite. He had no business being in the temple. But the high priest put him in the temple. Never should have been done. Eight, it was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. You might be thinking, that's interesting, but it has no relevance to my life. I think it does. We'll see it in a few minutes. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts continue to be broken over this situation in Afghanistan. There are Americans there who were told that they would be brought home, and they weren't. There are those who have tried and put themselves on the line to rescue those who were disappointed and we commend them for their bravery and for risking their lives. He said, there's no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. There are others that are still there, Americans that are still there, waiting for the knock on the door. Some of them are believers. We pray for them. What are they going to say when the knock comes? I'm sure they don't know. But you said, it shall be given to you in that hour what you should say. May they have a great sense of your presence. May they have a great sense of your care. May they have a great sense that the Lord is their shepherd. And that you have not forgotten them. Give them courage and give them hope. Remind them that 
their life is in your hands. Remind them that you said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then we would pray for those Americans and others who legitimately assisted and they are left behind and worried for their lives. We pray for those who don't know you that because of this tremendous pressure and tremendous uncertainty that they would call on the name of Jesus to be saved and through him and through him alone to receive eternal life for forgiveness of sins because of his sacrifice in their place. We thank you that you're near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. It's true, Lord, we have nowhere else to go except to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kevin DeYoung tells a uh, story about Buffalo Bill, Annie Oakley, and Kaiser Wilhelm II. Have you heard this story? It's a story. Kaiser Wilhelm II, just to refresh your memory, was the king of Prussia and the last German emperor. He reigned from June of 1888 until November of 1918. He was ambitious, he was volatile, he was an aggressive ruler whose policies in Europe were partly to blame for World War I. In 1889, when he had barely been on the throne for a year, Buffalo Bill showed up with his Wild West show. And the largest gathering place in Berlin was sold out. People had been waiting for months. Ringling and Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus was the greatest show on earth, but Buffalo Bill's Wild West show gave them a run for their money. The star was Annie Oakley, the famous sharpshooter. And she did this at every performance. She'd done it all over the world. At a certain point, she would take a cigar and ask for a volunteer from the audience to come up and stand and hold it and allow her to shoot it out of their hand. And the norm was that no one would volunteer. And then her husband would volunteer and he would hold it almost every single night. Well, in Berlin, no one volunteered, waited to see if anyone would come forward. Finally, Kaiser Wilhelm stood up himself, and he said, I will do it. And people were stunned. They said, no, no, not the Kaiser. His security men tried to stop him, but he was going to show them that he was a man of courage. And what he did was he walked up, held the cigar. A historian wrote that Annie afterwards said privately the night before she had had one extra glass of whiskey, which she deeply regretted. <laughs> because this was the biggest challenge of her life. And what would happen if she were to miss? She stepped back, took a deep breath, and took aim, and the cigar exploded. The Kaiser was a hero, and the people roared tremendously. Years later, after the First World War began, 
Annie Oakley wrote a very brief letter to Kaiser Wilhelm. It just said, Kaiser, would you be willing to give me a second shot? (laughs) In Nehemiah 13, God gives Nehemiah a second shot. Absolutely, he gets a second shot. Why would he need a second shot? You get to Nehemiah 13, it's the end of Nehemiah. And some amazing things had been done. They had rebuilt the wall. That was chapters 1 through 7. The wall had been down for 160 years. God put it on Nehemiah's heart. The king gave him favor, gave him the things that he needed. And they rebuilt the wall in 52 days. Glory to God. Amazing, amazing thing. Now, in the second half of the book, because the wall is built and the people are protected, there were very few people actually living in Jerusalem because it was unsafe. There was no wall. There was no security. But now that the wall is built, they're going to rebuild the people by teaching them the law of God. They're going to focus on the men because they are the heads of their homes and spiritually responsible for their families. And when you get into some other chapters, they begin to repopulate the cities. And then what they do is they begin to put a type of government in place with the priest because it was not a democracy. It was a theocracy. God ruled. This was Israel. What's interesting is that back in Nehemiah 10, when they read the word of God, the people were moved by their history. And they were moved by the fact that throughout the history of Israel, the Lord had been faithful to them, the Lord would bless them, they would ignore the Lord, they would ignore the prophets, they would go after other gods, and then they would repent because the Lord would bring hardship on them, And then you go through the cycle again and again and again. And it had occurred even in their own time. So the people repented after Ezra read and instructed them in the word. And they said, we will follow the Lord. They even, they made a covenant. They they signed it in Nehemiah 10. And they said, we will not do that anymore, but we will follow the Lord wholly. Nehemiah, at a certain point, goes back. He's the governor. He was the cupbearer to the king. He goes back to visit with the king somewhere in the range of a year to two years. When he returns, he's heartbroken because he sees that all the reforms that they put in place and all the promises that were made have been violated and they've been compromised. It, it It was... utterly disheartening. It was, um, it, it, had, it had to just be the biggest blow that Nehemiah had ever gone through because, especially when you look at Nehemiah 11, as they begin to repopulate the city and people are moving in, they, they are, again, putting a place of government that God ordained. And one commentator, Derek Kidner, It was such a marvel 
of what they were building internally. The walls built, but the city they were building was under the law of God. And you know, when you follow the law of God, the law of God things go well for you. Deuteronomy 4 says, it's very clear that when we follow the commands of God, when we follow the Ten Commandments, in fact, they're told in Deuteronomy, well, you follow the commandments of the Lord so that it might go well with you and your children. It's when we get away from the truth of God that things don't go well because we think we know better. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction, Proverbs says. So, one commentator describes what they had done in Jerusalem, and he calls it an ordered society. It was a model city. People were thrilled to be there. It was safe. It honored the Lord. They honored one another. It was where you wanted to be. All based on the law of God. To put it another way in today's language, Jerusalem under Nehemiah was not a sanctuary city. I'd never heard of a sanctuary city until, I don't know how many years ago, suddenly I remember, this is a sanctuary city. And then another sanctuary city. You know exactly what I'm talking about. What is a sanctuary city? When you really look at it, sanctuary cities are cities that are governed by morally insane leaders who are described in Isaiah 5.20, which says, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Sanctuary cities are where what is evil is promoted and what is good is demoted. And we see it across America. You know it, and I know it. And there is, uh, it's not ordered, it's disordered. I used to drive a truck in the summers in San Francisco, dropping off air freight. I've been all over San Francisco. Back alleys, Chinatown, I know the shortcuts. I'll take you there sometime. <laughs> but I really did learn, I, I learned to drive in the city. And it, it, you perhaps have been there. It, it's a beautiful city. It's always been an immoral city, always, if you know the history of San Francisco. But it's a beautiful city. It's no longer a beautiful city. It's a dangerous city. It is, um, it's, it's absolutely lawless. You've seen the video of the shoplifters just walking in, grabbing what they want. Police are told to stand down. This is why stores, shops, pharmacies are closing, and it's just not there. Think of Portland, think of Seattle, think of, I mean, they're in Texas. This is what happens when we get away from what God says. But when you do what God says, there's favor and there's blessing. God always blesses obedience. If you think that might be a little too strong about what I said about those who lead sanctuary cities, check out Romans 128, where it talks about that there's a process, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, where God will give them over. If you want to sin, if you want to suppress the truth of God, if you want to completely ignore God and harden your heart, God will let you go at a certain point. And there are three times in Romans 1, it, he gave them over, 
And first he gave them over to sexual lust, and we had the sexual revolution in the 60s. Then the next time he gives them over to homosexuality and lesbianism, and we had the homosexual revolution in the 70s and 80s. And the third thing is he gives them over to a reprobate mind, which is an unthinking mind. A, uh, it's a type of moral insanity. Because you've suppressed truth for so long, you absolutely can't think straight, and that's when you call evil good and good evil. And then if you look at the results of what happens when you are given over to a non-functioning mind in Romans 1, I want you to note the damage that is done when there is moral insanity to this level, where evil is called good, good is called evil. Romans 1.28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, a type of insanity, to do the things which are not proper. How many times do you see the news or read something and you say to yourself, that's not right? That's not right. That's because it's not right. And it shouldn't be. And you know it, and they know it. But they're not interested in right because of their insanity and because of the hardness of their hearts. 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips. Think about a sanctuary city. Sanctuary city... You can be walking with your daughter on Pier 39 in San Francisco, and someone who's in the country illegally can shoot her in the head and kill her and walk. You commit a felony, and you're released on bail by some rogue DA. It's everywhere in America. And the root is in Romans 1. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, and they are. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. And if you stand up and say, that's not right, and what you're doing is evil, they'll come after you, and you're the bad guy. And they will hound you, and they will cancel you. If you weren't depressed when you walked in here, allow me to help you. <laughs> but you know all of this. So Nehemiah shows up to what was an ordered city, and what does he find? He finds rebellion and compromise to the living God. So here's a question. What did Nehemiah do when he returned and discovered that the people had seriously compromised God's commands in four specific ways? Well, here's what he did. He didn't do anything because he didn't want to offend anybody. He, uh, he just, I mean, he saw what was going on, but he chose to ignore it because he was just a nice guy. A nice guy. I have, um, I never planned on going into men's ministry, but 
It's where I wound up for 30 some years. I've done hundreds, hundreds of men's conferences around the United States and Canada. I've spoken to a lot of men. Never saw that coming, but it's what the Lord had for me. Inevitably, when I do a men's conference, the issue comes up about what it means to be, what is a Christian man? What is masculinity? Um, the model of masculinity, masculinity is the Lord Jesus Christ. We hear about some people, the only time they'll ever use the word masculinity is with the word toxic in front of it. Are there toxic men? Sure. Why are they toxic? Because they're out of control and they're living for themselves and they are not submitted to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in his scriptures. They need a new heart. They need to be born again. They need Christ to invade their lives, as we all do, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They're living for themselves. They're full of wickedness and deceit and selfish ambition. It's just about them. But when Christ gets hold of a man, he changes a man's heart. When Christ gets hold of a woman, he changes her heart. Old things pass away, all things become new. What the Lord wants to do is he wants to begin to change us. And when we're talking about manhood and masculinity, which is so under attack in our culture, the model is Jesus. Jesus was the perfect model of manhood. Here's the key to Christian manhood. It's just what Jesus did. When we look at Jesus, we see it. Jesus could be kind. Jesus could be gentle. Jesus could be tender. Could he not? Of course he could. But Jesus could be confronting confrontational. He could be blunt. He could be direct. You are of your father, the devil. Well, Dale Carnegie wrote a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He spoke it to the religious leaders of Israel. And if you read the four gospels, the majority of stuff in between the beginning and the end of the gospels is Jesus confronting the spiritual leaders of Israel and going toe-to-toe and face-to-face and not backing down. He was confronting them about their lies. But you'll see him also, but see, that's, that's just not all that he was because Jesus was full of grace. He was full of truth. He was full of mercy. He... He's Jesus. So Jairus comes to him and says, my daughter. And he says, all right, I'll go. On his way to see Jairus' daughter, the woman with the issue of blood just reaches out out of desperation and touches the hem of his garment. And he said, who touched me? And the disciple said, what do you mean who touched you? There are hundreds of people around here. He said, power went forth from me. And this little lady who'd been paying doctors for years and years and years and years and was totally without hope just reached out and touched the hem of his garment. And she was healed because he's near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He would heal the blind. He'd heal the lepers. Wherever Jesus went, he healed. And he was compassionate. He was tender. All the little kids wanted to be with him. And the disciples said, get away. 
don't bother Jesus. Jesus said, no, no, come on, let him up here. Hey, sweetheart, how are you? What's your name? Hey, buddy, how are you doing? How old are you? That's Jesus. He can be tender, compassionate, gracious. He could be nice. If you're always nice, you're out of balance. That's not Christian manhood. Christian manhood is following what Jesus did. When Jesus needed to be kind, he was kind. When Jesus needed to be confrontational, he was confrontational. We learn from Jesus that Christian masculinity is bringing, catch this, it's bringing the appropriate trait to bear at the appropriate time. When confrontation needs to take place, godly and sane leaders confront, like Jesus. When it's time to be tender, because someone has been absolutely crushed, you should have no problem being tender. Now, we're all born with propensities one way or the other. Proverbs 3.3 says, Wrap truth and kindness around your neck. So this morning I was tying my tie. And I was remembering how I learned to tie a tie. My dad taught me how to tie a tie. Taught me how to do different knots. I tied a four in hand today. Uh, sometimes I tie a half Windsor, sometimes a full Windsor. Um, but I remember my dad teaching me to tie a tie, and when I was little, when I was a little guy in our house, we started getting ready for church Sunday morning on Saturday night. We'd watch Lawrence Welk, and then we'd start getting ready for church. <laughs> Some of you don't know about Lawrence Welk, just Google Lawrence Welk. But we'd shine our shoes, and we'd take a bath, and we'd get all ready, because we're going to church the next day. It was a big deal to my dad and my mom. Um, so my mom, we always had little suits, because everybody wore suits back then. And my first tie, you just put it on. Then I got older, and my dad was teaching me how to tie a tie. And so what my dad would do, he'd stand behind me, and then he'd wrap it around. And he said, you do this, and this, and this. And, I mean, it was really neat. I was like 26, 27, <laughs> and I'm learning to do this. Proverbs 3.3, 3, wrap truth and kindness around your neck. You got to tie them both on. Some of us are truth-oriented, that's how we're wired, and so we're very truthful, but we have problems with kindness. Some of us are so kind and have such tender hearts and are so merciful, we, we, we can't tell the truth. So as we walk with the Lord, we have to mature and we have to learn to tell truth and we have to learn to be tender. We have to learn to speak the truth in what? Love. Because you've got to have both. Just like Jesus did. And we're all in process and we're all learning. So when Nehemiah came back and saw that what had been done, the appropriate thing to do was not to be nice. The appropriate thing to do as a sane and godly leader was to confront the sin and to confront the rebellion before the living God. He, um, 
He had to do this in four specific ways. So I've got a two-part outline, and here's point one. Nehemiah was a chosen leader who was willing to confront sin and invoke consequences. This is sane, and this is godly. This is what God-fearing men and God-fearing women do. We do it in our homes. We do it in our businesses. We do it in our relationships. Nehemiah's job did not just stop with building the wall. Then the task is to rebuild people. The task is to rebuild sanity. The, the task is to rebuild order instead of chaos. So Nehemiah comes back and he confronts four problems. And we're going to look at these quickly. The first problem was a deep state mole had been given an office in the temple. That's Tobiah. And he was a deep state mole because he'd been the enemy of Nehemiah from day one. He's mentioned throughout the book. Um, by the way, Tobiah was a Ammonite and we looked at that in Nehemiah 13.1 and there's some, there's some, quite frankly, a pretty harsh statement that God makes about the Ammonites and the Moabites. They were descendants of, do you remember Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels say, get out of here. Don't look back. His wife looked back. She turned into a pillar of salt. He escapes with his two daughters. If you recall the situation, you can't live among that kind of immorality as Sodom and Gomorrah without being affected in some way. And what happened was their daughters were so panicked that God had destroyed the city that they would be never married and never have children. So they cohabitated with their father both got pregnant, from them came Ammonites, Moabites. That's history. Bible's full of history. And, and the whole section about Tobiah is from 13.1 down to verse 9. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Why? Well, here's why, verse 2. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. When, when the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt and going into the land, the Ammonites and the Moabites ambushed them. The Moabites hired Balaam to curse them. And every time he went to curse them, God would control his tongue and he'd wind up blessing them. But they hated the Jews. As a result of that, verse 3, so when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Wow, that's pretty harsh. It, it is harsh, but they had violated the will and the purpose of God. God said to Abraham, those who bless you, them will I bless. They cursed them. Now, does that mean if you were of that, those two tribes, it was over for you? No. If you go to the book of Ruth, you'll find that, that there was a woman named Naomi 
and there was a famine back in Israel with her husband and boys, they went to Moab. Now, quite frankly, they never should have done that, but her husband was not a spiritual leader. But they went. The boys, two boys, got married. And then through a series of events, both boys died. And the husband died. Naomi is going to return to Israel, says to the two girls, you need to stay here. And the one girl says, okay. And Ruth says, I don't want to stay here. I want to go with you. And then she said, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And she went back. See, the problem was the gods. And if you study the gods of the Moabites, little girls in that culture were not safe because of the sexual deviancy of the priest. There could be a knock at the door any moment, and your daughter could be taken. It was wicked. It was Taliban stuff. She said to Naomi, your God shall be my God, your people shall be my people. She goes, while she's there, she meets Boaz. Long story short, they get married. You read the end of Ruth, Ruth 4. Ruth and Boaz got married. Ruth and Boaz became the great grandparents of someone you may have heard, King David. King David's great-grandmother was a Moabitess. So see, there, there, there's room at the cross for you. Though many have come, there's still room for one. No matter what your background. Jesus is the door. He's the only door. There's no other name given to men under heaven by which we may be saved in the name of Jesus. So they gave Tobiah an office that never should have been done. What did Nehemiah do? He dealt with it. And if you go down to verse 8, it was very displeasing to me. I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms. And I returned there with the utensils of the house of God with grain offerings and frankincense. In other words, he cleansed the temple just as Jesus would do twice, 450, 500 years down the road. It was done out of righteousness and a love for God. He confronted and he inflicted consequences. That's what godly and stable leaders do when it's appropriate. The next problem was there was a serious infrastructure collapse due to greed. So what are you talking about? Look at verse 10. The Levites were the priests. They were supported in the temple by the offerings, by the tithes of produce, of food, of money. That's how they were supported. And back in Nehemiah 10, the people said, oh, yes, we will do that. We will care for the household of God. They made a promise. They signed their names on it. Uh, 10, I discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. Why? The people didn't want to do it. They changed their minds. And the singers who performed the service had gone away. The Levites had gone away, each to his own field. Now the Levites, instead of taking care of the temple, they're out working the field so they can feed their families. That's why the storage rooms 
were not being used, and that's why the high priest let Tobiah move in. He goes, oh, yeah, you can have an office here. We don't need that stuff anymore because the people aren't giving what they said they would give. So watch Nehemiah swing into action. A godly and sane leader who's under the control of the Lord. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their post. Hey, guys, let's get this right. You said you do this. You haven't done it. I want everybody here, 8 o'clock in the morning. Let's get this right. We're going to serve the Lord. That's what leaders do. And then he appoints them in charge of the storehouses. That's in 13 and 14. Then you have a third problem that he confronts. This is in verses 15 to 22. <clears throat> there was a breach of the wall. Now, they built the wall. They had gates. They shut the gates. There was a breach of the wall every Sabbath day to increase the economy. In other words, they started violating the Sabbath day. If you go to Israel on a tour, you need to know in advance that if on a Friday night at 8 o'clock, you get a craving for a glazed donut, you're out of luck until 6 p.m. the next night. Because on Friday night at 6 p.m., the nation of Israel shuts down until Saturday at 6 p.m. I mean, that's how it is. The Sabbath was for Israel. The Sabbath is Saturday. We often will call Sunday the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. We're not under the Sabbath. We're not Jews. We're the church. God has a plan for the Jewish people. God has a plan for the church. And they'll all nest it when Christ returns. But this Sabbath was important. Look at 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were trading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sacks of grain, loading them on donkeys, as well as grapes, wines, fig, all kinds of loads, brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. I admonished them on the day they sold food. This wasn't supposed to be happening. Also, men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise. Look at 17. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you were doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that I, our God brought on us in this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. By the way, in, in Israel, there was not only a Sabbath day, there was a Sabbath year. The Jews were taken into captivity for 70 years. Do you know how many years they violated the Sabbath year and never took it? 490 years. So they were in captivity 70 years. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. But he, he's saying, learn from history. We just went through this, guys. What are you thinking? He confronts them, and he reestablishes everything in 19, and he gets it fixed. And then he says to them, he says to the traders in 21, I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I'll use force against you. Yeah. Well, he was the governor. He had the right to do that. He had the right to restrain evil as the governor Romans 13 says the job of government before Almighty God is to restrain evil. 
We forget that because of the days we're living in. Government is legislating evil. But their job is to restrain it. Fourth problem. There was a serious attempt to redefine God's law on marriage. Or to put it another way, there was a serious attempt to redefine marriage. Now somehow this sounds familiar. And you say, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 23. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod. Watch this. Ammon and Moab. Oh, really? So now you've got mixed marriages. This wasn't an issue of race uh, or skin color. This was an issue of which God do you bow the knee to? You see. And this was serious. And it was so serious, verse 24, is for their children have spoken the language of Ashdod. None of them was able to speak the language of Judah. They couldn't speak the language of Judah. So when the scriptures are read, they couldn't understand the word of God. This is serious. And then, look what he does in 25. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Well, that wasn't very nice. That wasn't very Christian. How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus? He was a follower. Who had wrapped truth and kindness around his neck. It was actually kind to rebuke. You got a little child... who comes out of the womb thinking they are the center of the universe and they're somewhat overwhelming and they're overpowering and they can wear you down and you're kind of stunned and you're shocked. You can't let that little kid win. Well, I'm reading all these psychology books. Why don't you read the Word of God? Why don't you read Proverbs? Why don't you read competent people that God has given to the church, like Dr. Dobson, who know the Word of God and have been faithful for years and years? Why would you ignore him? Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Read what God says about raising kids. Proverbs 19, discipline your son while there is hope. My son John gave me permission to tell this. I have the signed document. So when John was in high school, he'd always been an easy kid, real compliant kid. Things started changing in high school, and uh, we hit some whitewater rapids. And uh, he'd always been very truthful. He was so truthful that uh, when he started lying, I thought he was telling the truth. And he conned me for a while. I mean, I, I admit it, he conned me. He was good. And then we began to see behaviors. And the way we 
worked it in our home was that if you want more response, if you want more privileges, you have to handle more responsibility. The more responsibility you take on and do it well, the more privileges you get. And if you don't take care of your responsibilities, then you lose privileges. Kind of how, it's kind of how the Lord works with us. He's our Father. He disciplines us. He gives and takes away. Why not? So that's kind of how we approach things. And so we, we hit a real hard stretch in high school, and John would tell you about it. He was here. He had a real hard stretch. And then I began to find out some things that were going on, and I had to take things away. And I thought, this will get his attention. It didn't get his attention. And then a few months later, I'd have to take this away. A little more severe. Didn't get his attention. This went on for about a year, a little over a year. And we lived out in the country, and it was a ways to school. And I had a, a Jeep, and I'd let John drive it to school so I didn't have to, or Mary, and take his brother. Um, he came home one day, and... Uh, he looked around and he goes, hey, Dad, where's my Jeep? I, I said, I gave it away. He could hardly speak. I'm serious. He was stunned. He said, you gave it away? I said, yeah. There's a family that needed a vehicle, so I gave it to him. He said, I can't believe you did that, Dad. And I said, well, I did it. I said, by the way, that, that wasn't your Jeep. That's my Jeep. He said, Dad, is this, this, uh, Dad is, is this the privilege responsibility thing? I said, oh, you're very astute. <laughs> he said, Dad, I can't believe you did that. I said, you know, John, it never had to get to this point. You remember back a year ago? What happened? And then after that, you didn't listen. And then we got here. And then we had to go through this. I kept trying to get your attention, John. I'm hoping I have your attention now. With that, so, so how long is this going to last? I said, I have no idea. I mean, how many weeks is this going to last? I said, oh, weeks? We're in the months. He said, Dad, I'm a senior. I said, yeah. How am I going to get to school? Well, there's a bus stop right down there. He said, I'm a senior. I said, yeah, you'll be the biggest guy on the bus. <clears throat> True story. It's funny now. It wasn't funny then. That was rough. He didn't like it, but he needed it. There are things I went through when I was his age, and thankfully, I had a dad and I had a mom, and they loved me enough to inflict consequences. They did that to me because they loved me, and their kindness saved me. That's what I mean when things, when we have to do harsh things, it's actually kind. Romans says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. He loves us, wants our attention. So we had Nehemiah 
a chosen leader who is willing to confront sin and invoke consequences. Secondly, there was Eli. Eli was a frozen leader who was unwilling to confront sin and invoke consequences. And he was high priest of Israel. First Samuel 2. It's quite the, quite the story. It's very sobering, and this has great application to us as parents and grandparents. It's, um, it's, it's an incredible story of a man who was a man of God, but he compromised. He was too nice. So for Samuel 2.22, now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He was the high priest. His sons were priests. Now in the earlier chapter, the choice cuts of meat that were brought to the temple to sacrifice to the Lord, the sons would steal them and keep them for themselves. But they were also involved in sexual encounters with women at the temple. Eli said to them, 23, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man has sinned against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for their, the Lord desired to put them to death. They'd crossed the line. They'd been given over. A man of God comes to Eli. Verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose from them all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Watch this, 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? Watch this. And honor your sons above me. You say, yeah, but he, he, he did say something to him. Yeah, he did. But he didn't follow through. He didn't invoke consequences. 30, therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I, didn't say that, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, watch this, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me, those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Dale Ralph Davis is a great theologian and former pastor. He says this, since Eli allowed his son's abuse of and contempt for Yahweh's worship to continue, he was honoring his sons above Yahweh. He may have verbally reproved them, but as judge, he took no decisive action when they persisted in their offense. He should have at least removed them from the priest's office. Perhaps Eli could not prevent his sons from practicing immorality, but he could prevent them from doing it as priest. Hence, the man of God rebukes the sin of sweet reasonableness. Be nice. The willingness to tolerate sin, to allow God's honor to take a back seat, to prefer my boys to my God. For Eli, blood was thicker than fidelity. 
He was too nice. Families, Christian families, are struggling. Christian families are under attack because of the days in which we live where evil is being called good and good is being called evil, even by those in the church. We're facing issues in families over sexual immorality in Christian homes. We're facing them in churches. We're facing them in different ministries. I have a good friend who a number of years ago, right after the AIDS crisis first hit, he he had come from a home uh, actually extremely dysfunctional, one of three brothers, go to church on Christmas and Easter kind of thing. Didn't really know the Lord. When he was in college, he came to know the Lord. The Lord called him to be a pastor. Wound up in ministry. Great guy, strong in the word. He had an older brother who was brilliant, went into business, left, went to a city, did extremely well. Always, I remember him telling me he really thought his brother was a homosexual, but never broadcasted it, never it didn't, as the, as the term is, never came out. Got a call, and, and really the brother had cut himself off from everybody. Got a call from his brother letting him know that he had, he had AIDS. And that resulted in a number of conversations, resulted in his brother coming up and spending Christmas with the family. Now, my friend and his wife had four little kids. And they brought him in, they loved him, they ate dinner, they did all the things together, and he had a wonderful time. He, uh, he, he was, he was a, a gentleman, he was uh, respectful, he knew where they stood and what they believed, didn't attempt to violate that. And as the months and months went by, he came to know Christ. Eventually passed away. He's with the Lord today. That was 30, 30 some years ago. Almost 40. Today, the scenario is a little different because Christian families are facing situations where the child you brought up to know the Lord. A child you brought up in the faith, who knows scripture, knows the gospel, has chosen another path sexually, has gone a certain way, adopted a certain lifestyle, and this is everywhere. And what they want is affirmation and they want approval, full out approval. And this makes for some very uncomfortable situations. And what we need is great wisdom. I read this book twice. It's called Messy, M-E-S-S-Y, Grace, by Caleb Kaltenbach, graduate of Dallas Seminary, pastor. When he was two, his parents divorced. His mother went into a long-term lesbian relationship. His dad 
was a homosexual that was not open about it, but as years went by, his dad became more open. In college, he came to Christ, became a pastor. And it's the story of their journey, ups and downs, times where they got along and times where they didn't get along. And how do you wrap truth and kindness around your neck? And how do you navigate this? It's quite the story. It's very solid biblically. And there's a tension between truth and kindness. What do you, what do, you do in this situation? And all you can do is say, Lord Jesus, I need you to, I need your wisdom. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Give me what I should say in this situation. Because it's, it's tremendously sensitive. I've talked with numerous families, numerous men, after Bible said, we got a situation, Steve, we have a, a, a young man comes to my mind. He's in a relationship. He wants to come home for Christmas. He wants to bring his friend. They want to stay in the same room. They're very proud. They're very open. They're very vocal. The family split. What would you do? I said, well, all I can do is give you what I would do. I know what my friend would do, whose brother died of AIDS. Because you see, his brother handled it in a different fashion, respected the family and their values. But if someone's going to come in and be proud and be loud and expect us to accommodate to their perspective, I can't do that. Because at our house at Christmas, we have little children. And Jesus said, woe to you who put a millstone around a child's neck. And I cannot do that, and I will not do it. You say, that's harsh. I don't think it's harsh if it's said in the right way. They won't like it. Well, I'm sure of that. But they know the truth. And my job is not to get their approval. My job is to please the Lord. That's, that's it. And well, we might lose them. Well, you might. Then again, you might not. The prodigal son story is in the Bible for a reason. We were having men's Bible study, I don't know, four years ago, five, six, could have been seven. I don't know. I show up for men's Bible study. I just, I just done a conference in another state. And during the conference, a guy came up to me, could hardly talk. He said, my son has just left for San Francisco. And I just put my <clears throat> arm around him. And we had a short prayer. And I said, don't stop praying for him. 
the Holy Spirit's in San Francisco. So you keep praying. I came back to teach Bible study, and a guy that has come for years said, Steve, my son, who, as you know, left and moved to Houston to get involved in the gay movement, is on his way home. And he's turned back to Christ. You can't lose hope. What these wandering people that we love need is sane and godly leadership. They know you love them. They know that. And they also know you're telling them the truth. They know it. So we entrust them to the Lord. We cannot become Eli's. I know of two churches on the West Coast, different denominations, conservative churches. In both situations, the senior pastor had a son who announced he was pursuing the gay lifestyle. And the pastor talked with the elders in both situations. Other elders were dealing with similar things in their own home. And what they did was they flipped their position on sexual immorality. They absolutely flipped it. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, if you love father and mother more than you love me, basically he said, you are not mine. And if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. Jesus needs to be first. We don't ever stop loving but we refuse to bow the knee to idolatry. Don't put your kids above God. Do not honor your son or your daughter more than the Lord. That's a word for us today. Father, we come to you. These are hard things. They break our hearts. They grieve us. We lose sleep over these things. We carry burdens. We entrust them to you. Give us the mind of Christ to walk carefully before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.